The following narrative is fiction, written and produced by the History Files podcast, and the timeless works of George Orwell inspire its themes. The world of the Great Reset takes place in the decade before 1984, and while it could be interpreted as an unofficial prequel, readers will notice unique differences. We hope you enjoy. The Great Reset by Blake Hamilton Chapter 1 Pancake Monday A crisp May morning settled on the City of London as John Herald stirred from his sleep. Staring at the ceiling, he recited in his head, Bridget, Mark, Teacher, Two Grand Drive London, his inner voice trailing off as he failed to recall the fifth memory. A sharp pang of distress pierced through him, leaving him breathless for a moment. Gathering himself, he glanced at the woman lying beside him, her face softened by sleep. Bridget, his high school sweetheart, and now his anchor in the turbulent sea of his failing memory. Their house was as ordinary as their life had been for the past few decades. Yet today, a peculiar urgency seemed to hover in the air, an urgency reflected in the pages of the morning newspaper that lay on the breakfast table. Picking it up, John's gaze fixated on the headlines. The world was preparing for the Great Reset of 1974, a project aiming to unite the world with a singular narrative of truth, a digitized global library. He frowned, crumpling the paper in his weathered hands. This isn't right, Bridget, he murmured, his eyes searching hers for understanding. History isn't meant to be a single story. It's about multiple perspectives, different voices. Bridget sighed, the corners of her eyes crinkling with concern and confusion. John, she began, her voice barely more than a whisper. I know you really care about these issues, but you know that this has been in the works for some time now, and to be honest, it's hard to keep up sometimes. Their conversation was cut short by a sudden knock on the door. Bridget rose to answer it, her steps echoing the rhythm of familiarity in their humble home. Their son Mark stood at the threshold, his stern face relaxing into a warm smile at the sight of his mother. Morning, Mum, he greeted, bending down to peck her on the cheek. Morning, love, she responded, stepping aside to let him in. You're right on time. Pancakes will be ready soon, she said, referencing their Monday tradition. Mark Herald, an officer of the Ministry of the Corps Library and a staunch believer in the Great Reset, brought with him a gust of the world beyond their domestic bubble. As they gathered around the breakfast table, Mark, trying to convince his father about the virtues of the Great Reset, said, Dad, you of all people should understand. This is about unity, about peace. John countered, his voice sharp. It's about control, son. It's about silencing the voices that don't align with the League's narrative. Mark's face tightened. I expected more from you, Dad. More support, more understanding. Before the argument could escalate further, Bridget interjected. That's enough, both of you. She turned to Mark, her voice softening. You should go now. You'll be late. Mark glanced at his watch and grimaced. You're right, Mum. He leaned over to kiss her goodbye, then turned towards his father. A hint of concern laced his parting words. Dad, when are you going to stop living in the past? The door closed behind Mark, leaving a silence in its wake. John sat deflated, the joy of their breakfast tradition replaced by a sour taste. Bridget moved to sit next to him, her arm around his shoulders offering silent comfort. John she said, getting down to look at him. 
her blue eyes filled with a mixture of love and worry. You're going to be late for school. A soft sigh escaped his lips as he nodded, kissing her forehead. Right. I'd better get going, he replied, standing from the table and heading to the hallway to collect his things. He walked out of the door, leaving behind the familiar comfort of his home and stepping into a world on the brink of monumental change. Chapter 2. Famous Faces John walked the familiar route to the high school, his worn leather bag with textbooks slung over his shoulder. His stride was measured, the result of a lifelong commitment to maintaining his health and fitness. He made it a point to walk to work each day, turning the journey into a gentle daily exercise and a challenge for his mind. He noted the names of the shops and streets, landmarks on his route, the florist's shop on Allen Street, the bakery on Carnaby Avenue, the grocer's shop at the corner of Dunstan Road. Each name was a victory, a confirmation that he was still holding on to reality. Catching a glimpse of his reflection in a storefront window, John noted the lines on his face, a testament to his seventy years of life. His hair was thinning and brown, combed neatly back. His clean-shaven face was framed by blue glasses perched on his nose, and despite the decades, his five-foot-nine figure was strong and hearty, a result of a life of outdoor activities, hikes and countryside adventures with Bridget. It was not long until John arrived at the West London Public High School, a large brick complex built in the 1930s, worn and intimidating. He entered through its iron gates, walking the familiar path to his staff room on the second floor of Block D. The journey up the graffiti-strewn staircase was an unwelcome reminder of the mindless pranks of bored teenagers. He was always the first to arrive, the staff room cold and dark until he flicked on the lights at exactly 8.10am. He dropped his bag, stored his lunch in the bar fridge, and brewed a strong black coffee, taking a sip and muttering to himself, Nectar of the Gods. Sitting down at his desk, John reached into his breast pocket and pulled out his diary, its worn brown leather cover etched with the words, Property of the Ministry of Education, that he'd defiantly scratched out, felt familiar in his hands. The diary held his class timetable, a few phone numbers, and two precious photographs, mementos of a time when life was simpler and his mind clearer. Having prepared his lesson plan, John reached into the old wooden chest that was under his desk. Over the years, he had amassed an impressive collection of personal resources to aid his teaching. Maps, newspaper clippings, relics from the wars, and letters of correspondence from various corners of the world. These were not the approved core library syllabus material, but they added a touch of authenticity that the textbooks often lacked. Though this practice was frowned upon by the Department of Education, John was nearing retirement and largely left alone. Arriving at the classroom door, he took a deep breath and braced himself. Class 9C was often rowdy, their adolescent energy proving a challenge to contain. Opening the door, he was met with the familiar cacophony of voices and shuffling of desks. He ushered them into order, insisting they take their books out and stand at attention as he laid out the day's plan. There were a few groans from the back and some slouching shoulders, but overall the routine had proven effective. Now, gentlemen, are we ready? he began, revealing the game board for famous faces. The board displayed a collection of images of notable figures from history. The students loved this game, their competitive natures coming alive as they vied to recognize the individuals. Who can tell me who this man is? John asked, pointing to an image of a man with an oval-shaped face with intense blue eyes. 
his prominent nose and neatly groomed facial hair contributed to his distinguished and serious appearance. There was a moment's pause as the class studied the picture. The silence was then broken by a couple of boys from the back row. Isn't that Kent's girlfriend? One of the boys mocked. Like a flash, Kent struck back. That's funny. I thought your mum was my girlfriend, at least. That's what she told me last. Boys! John stepped in with a stern blast. A quiet fell over the class. Then a tall boy named Tom from the front row raised his hand. Sir, that's Woodrow Wilson, he offered, his tone confident. Very good, Tom, John praised, his voice echoing in the momentarily silent room. Woodrow Wilson, US President, and the man who championed the idea of a League of Nations, a concept which has grown into the project we now know as the Core Library. Moving on to the next image, he asked, and who can tell me who this lady is? This time it was an image of a classic beauty with a regal presence. She had green eyes and short silver hair, a well-defined jawline and a stern expression. There was a bit of an unsure murmur through the class before Nick piped up from the middle of the room. That's Belinda Barrett, sir, the current director of the core library, he said quickly, closing his book from the notes on his back page. Spot on, Tom, John acknowledged, and there is nothing wrong with using your notes. It's why we make them in the first place. He continued to address the whole class. Belinda Barrett. She continues the work started by Wilson, maintaining the core library's mission of preserving and presenting history in a single unquestioning narrative. Certainly not a project that has happened overnight, but don't they seem confident with this digital update? The kids all stare blankly at John. What's happening now? moaned a boy in the back. John removed his glasses and rubbed the bridge of his nose. The great reset ringing any bells. It was all over the news today. The boy looked at his mate next to him and said with a smile, that would be why I didn't know because it's lame. John decided to push on. He knew getting bogged down here ran the risk of derailing the whole class. Anyway, finally who can tell me who this man is? John asked, moving on to the last image of the game. It was a picture of a man with a distinguished appearance and a warm and charismatic smile. He had a round face, expressive eyes and neatly combed hair reflecting his confidence. Simon, a typically reserved boy at the back of the class, raised his hand. That's Franklin D. Roosevelt, sir, he said with a noticeable hint of pride. Excellent, Simon. Franklin D. Roosevelt indeed, John acknowledged. And can anyone tell me what's special about him? Simon piped up again. Isn't that the guy that got shot, sir? Quite right, John nodded. FDR was a very controversial president. After the Great Depression, he ran on a platform of opening America to the world and breaking its isolation. But this did not go down well with many of his citizens. It's a big reason why America is still such a small player on the global stage today. We agree on the core narrative, of course, but they mostly like to keep to themselves. Now on to the next phase of our lesson, John declared, moving over to a worn-out wooden box on his desk. It creaked open to reveal a plethora of historical treasures, maps, newspaper clippings and postcards. John loved to incorporate these tangible relics of the past into his teachings. It brought a sense of realness to the often abstract concepts of history. He started distributing the maps and newspaper clippings amongst the students, their faces lighting up with interest as they examined the artifacts. Today we're discussing the end of the First World War, the Treaty of Versailles, and Germany's self-imposed isolation following its loss, John began moving to the front of the class once more. He continued, 
Germany found itself under a cloud of shame and dishonor. As a result, it chose to isolate itself from the rest of the world, beginning the Walling Project. This was a time of great turmoil and transformation as Germany sought to reform itself from within. John carefully unfolded an old map from his personal collection. It was a German map from the 1920s, one that depicted the country's borders just after the Walling Project began. The students craned their necks to catch a glimpse of the map as John pointed out different features. This map, he said, is a stark reminder of a country in self-imposed exile, desperately working to reclaim its honor. Remember, history often isn't just about grand battles and powerful leaders, but also about the people and societies that are caught up in these events, their efforts, struggles, and resilience. The human side of history is just as important. John traced his fingers over the worn, yellowed paper of the map, his eyes momentarily distant. This map was sent to me by my father, Robert, he revealed, a note of nostalgia creeping into his voice. He was stationed in Germany during the occupation by the Entente. A hand shot up from the middle of the classroom. It was Ben, a curious boy with sharp eyes. Sir, where was he stationed? John paused. His mind reached for the answer, but to his dismay found nothing. A blank. That detail, a detail of his own father, was lost somewhere in the fog of his memory. He felt a sting of embarrassment. Well, Ben, he started, deftly manoeuvring around the missing piece of information. That's a story for another day. A slight awkwardness hung in the air. John cleared his throat, moving on swiftly. My father. He never made it home. He was killed in an accident, John said, trying to keep his voice steady. This map. It was the last thing he sent me. The room fell silent, the boisterous energy of the boys temporarily tamed by the solemn story. The heavy silence was broken by a question that was half statement, half wonder. Sir, blurted out a student named Jack, a usually quiet lad who rarely participated in discussions, why is this map printed wrong? John, still caught up in his memories, looked at Jack with mild confusion. What do you mean, Jack? Jack got up, and with a newfound boldness, walked over to the core library map hanging on the right side of the classroom. Look, sir, he pointed. The borders on this map, they're smaller. Your old map. It shows the walling project being bigger. Bewildered, John got up and compared the two maps. He scrutinized the borders of Germany on both maps. Indeed, the old map showed a larger Germany. The difference was subtle, yet undeniable. A sense of disquiet settled over him. Why hadn't he noticed this discrepancy before? What could this mean? Suddenly the class seemed to hold its breath, waiting for his response. Must be a printing error, Jack, John managed to say after a moment, keeping his voice steady. I'll let the head teacher know there's a mistake on this new core library map. We'll have to get a new one. The rest of the lesson carried on in the usual way, with a steady rhythm of notes and questions and name-calling. But John couldn't shake off the feeling of unease the discrepancy in the maps had stirred in him. As the shrill bell marked the end of the first period, John weaved his way through the corridors, navigating the thrumming river of students towards the refuge of the staff room. On the head teacher's desk, he delicately placed a folded note, its purpose simple yet critical, a request for a new and more accurate map. His pen had barely returned to his pocket when the echo of the second bell filled the air, a relentless reminder of the ceaseless march of time. Chapter 3 Librarians. 
John stood at the edge of the school grounds, waiting as the last of his students boarded their buses. His mind was still preoccupied with the mismatched maps when the sound of an approaching car pulled him out of his thoughts. A dark blue government sedan pulled up beside him, its glossy exterior seeming out of place amidst the school buses. The car doors opened and two figures stepped out. They were both immaculately dressed in dark blue coats, the emblem of a single silver book, the mark of the Corps Library's enforcement division, emblazoned on their right breast pockets. These were the librarians. John's heart sunk at the sight of them. He despised this thought police, the zealous acolytes of the core narrative, who allowed no room for questions, doubts or alternative views. Their rigid beliefs, their blind loyalty to the core narrative, and their willingness to enforce it at all costs made him deeply uncomfortable. Mr. Herald, one of them called out, his tone icy and formal. Yes, John replied, trying to rein in his disgust. We've received a complaint about some discrepancies with your teaching materials, the second librarian stated, his eyes hard. John froze. His mind raced back to the note he'd left for the head teacher. He'd only meant to correct a simple error. Complaint? he stammered. I only noticed a difference in... The Ministry does not make mistakes, Mr. Herald, the first librarian interrupted him, his voice as cold as his gaze. Your personal teaching materials, including your hazardous map, have been confiscated for incineration. We cannot risk feeding incorrect information to these students now, can we? John felt his blood turn cold at their words. The map, his father's last memory, to be incinerated. Fear mingled with anger, and for a moment he was at a loss for words. The day had turned from curious to deeply troubling. Hazardous, John erupted aghast. That's a personal possession, you can't just... We can, and we have, Mr. Herald. The second librarian cut him off sharply, pulling out a paper from his pocket and waving it at John. This is a warrant from the Ministry. It states that we have the authority to confiscate any items deemed contrary to the core narrative. John felt a surge of fury, a heat that boiled his blood. Moreover, if you wish to retain your benefits, your long-service entitlements, I'd suggest you let this matter go, the librarian continued, a threatening undercurrent in his voice. Also, remember that your son's position at the Ministry is not so secure that it cannot be questioned. John's clenched fists were aching to release the pent-up anger. His gut instinct was to tell these thugs of the Ministry exactly where they could shove their threats. He would gladly sacrifice a few months' pay to keep his father's maps, the only tangible connection he had left with his father. But then, the image of Mark came to his mind. His son, a man with a young family with two young girls. Their relationship was already on rocky grounds, and John knew that jeopardising Mark's job security was a risk he couldn't afford to take. The thought of his son severing ties with him entirely was too painful to consider. With a defeated sigh, he let his hands unclench, the fire in his eyes dimming. As he watched the government car disappear into the distance, a heavy knot formed in his stomach. John made his way back to the staff room, his heart pounding with a mix of relief and residual anger. Upon opening the door, the sight that met his eyes made his blood boil anew. His desk was in shambles, with the unfinished coffee carelessly toppled over, saturating his prepared notes for the next day's class. With a scornful huff, he muttered under his breath, Wankers! And then, amid the chaos, he found it, a forgotten relic they had carelessly left behind. A photograph of his father, Robert, 
stationed somewhere in the idyllic German countryside, surrounded by his unit buddies. Their smiles were infectious, a stark contrast to the sombre mood hanging in the room. With a sense of reverence, John carefully picked up the photograph of his father and his unit buddies. His hands were steady as he delicately placed the precious memento into his diary, nestling it securely between the pages. The diary had become a sanctuary of memories, holding a snapshot of John and Bridget camping as teenagers, and an image of Bridget cradling a newborn baby Mark. John closed the diary gently, tucking away the tangible fragments of his past within the worn brown cover. His day may have been marred by conflict, but this small victory lent him a sense of comfort. The librarians had not managed to take everything. He still had pieces of his past, remnants of his memories, safely tucked away within the pages.